On the 1st of August, 1740, in front of the Prince of Wales at his house at Cliverdon, a mask was performed about Alfred the Great. With words by James Thompson and music by Thomas Arne, the highlight was a song that became an anthem, Rule Britannia. It's the song that symbolises the Royal Navy and at prom concerts and sporting tournaments and moments of national celebration, patriotic crowds belt it out. Rule Britannia. Britannia rules the waves. But they're actually singing the wrong words. When it was written in 1740, there was no S on the end of rule. It wasn't a boast that Britain rules the waves. It was a call for help. A call for Britain to rule the waves. Rule, not rules, is still the lyric. It's just that Britain, as Britain became the world's dominant power in the 19th century, the Victorians added an S when they sang it, and that's become the popular way we sing it now. Back in 1740, Britain was a power, but she wasn't the power. She shared the waves with others, all intent on ruling the waves themselves. And nowhere was that competition more fierce than in the seas of North America and the Caribbean. Here, the Spanish and the French vied with the British for supremacy and trade. And it was trade that interested the British most. Unlike their European rivals, France, Spain, Prussia, Austria, the British weren't interested in increasing their land holdings on the continent of Europe, or anywhere else for that matter, nor were they interested in enhancing their dynasties. For the British, the number one reason to rule the waves was commercial. In short, mastery of the waves would protect existing trade and open doors to new opportunities. In 1740, when Rule Britannia was written, that commercial and trading agenda was under threat. Back in 1731, a Spanish ship operating off the coast of their colony of Florida in North America intercepted a British merchant ship called the Rebecca. It was, uh, the Rebecca was suspected of carrying illegal contraband. And on boarding the Rebecca, the Spaniards did in find that she was carrying an illegal cargo of sugar. In a rather heated discussion, the British captain of the Rebecca, Robert Jenkins, had his ear cut off. Fast forward seven years and Jenkins found himself in front of a House of Commons committee which was exploring cases of the Spanish interfering with British ships and British trade. After lamenting his woes, Jenkins' piece de la resistance was to produce his severed ear. Parliamentary politicians and the press suddenly arose with indignation. Tensions swiftly rose and war broke out over a severed ear that was seven years old from a merchant who'd basically been caught smuggling. More cynical heads would say that this had a lot less to do with the severed ear of poor old Robert Jenkins and a lot more to do with the parliamentary enemies of Robert Walpole trying to undermine Britain's first and to this day longest serving prime minister. Either way, a fleet under Admiral Vernon set sail for the Caribbean and in 1739, Britain declared war on Spain. The War of Jenkins' Ear. Vernon notched up a success capturing Portobello in Panama and for the next four years there were further actions in the Caribbean and indeed between the Spanish colony of Florida and the British colony of Georgia, which fundamentally produced no significant results. By 1743, this minor war had sort of been absorbed into a much more significant war of Austrian succession back in Europe. 
This was the war in which King George II of Britain was, became the last British monarch to personally lead his troops into battle. The War of Jenkins' Ear petered out as Britain turned her attention away from Spain towards Spain's ally and Britain's old enemy, France. For over a hundred years, the British and French had been building their empires in North America. The British on the eastern seaboard, starting with Virginia, and the French along the St. Lawrence River, Quebec City, had been founded in 1608. Both had also been nibbling away at Spanish possessions in the Caribbean, establishing their own colonies in that sphere too. These new colonies in North America and the Caribbean provided markets for British manufactured goods, textiles and luxuries. They were also the source of a lucrative market in animal furs, coming back the other way, uh, fish, tobacco and above all, sugar. The British public and the Europeans generally couldn't get enough of sugar. The problem was that sugar production was labour intensive, which led directly to the growth in the transatlantic slave trade. It's estimated that between the 16th and the 19th centuries, somewhere between 10 and 12 million Africans were enslaved to work on plantations in the Americas. The British were not alone in this trade. The Portuguese, the French, the Dutch were significant players, but even nations like Denmark, Spain, Sweden were in on the act too. It's estimated that British ships carried over 3 million Africans into slavery, over two-thirds of them during the 18th century, the period we're talking about now. Britain developed a lucrative, what was called a triangular trade, shipping goods from English ports like Bristol and Liverpool to West Africa, where they were exchanged with the locals for slaves. The slaves were then transported 5,000 miles across the Atlantic in horrific conditions and sold both in the American colonies, but many more were sold to plantations in the Caribbean. The proceeds of these slave sales were then used to purchase sugar and tobacco, which were then taken back to England to be sold at great profit. And then they bought their manufactured goods to take down to the west coast of Africa all over again. And so the, the triangle continued. Throughout the Georgian period, slavery underpinned the fortunes of, of many that many British made from the slave trade. And don't forget, sugar was so valuable that Robert Jenkins was smuggling it when he had his ear chopped off. And it wasn't just the British who saw sugar as a valuable commodity. Sugar was crucial to the French economy too. During this war of Austrian succession in 1747, the Royal Navy had attacked a massive French convoy of 250 ships that was leaving France for their sugar islands in the West Indies. Whilst not suffering huge losses, the French turned tail and ended up being blockaded in their home ports resulting in a huge loss of customs revenue for the French crown. It was this financial loss, based upon the, the loss of tax revenue for one product, sugar, as much as any military setbacks, that forced the French to the negotiating table to end the war of the Austrian succession. Peace, however, was short-lived, as Britain and French rivalries in North America exploded into war just six years later. At this point in history, the whole American continent was really dominated by four European powers. The biggest colonial empire was the Spanish, extending from modern-day California all the way through Mexico, Central America, and the western half of South America, down to Chile. The Portuguese were in Brazil, and the British and French, as we've talked about earlier, were vying for control of sort of Northeast America. 
The French controlled Quebec in modern-day Canada and laid claims actually to the whole Mississippi Basin, which would sort of cut off uh, British expansion to the west. The British Empire consisted of a series of colonies running up the east coast into the maritime provinces of modern-day Canada, plus lands to the north around Hudson Bay. Tensions rose as the French attempted, attempted to strengthen their claim to the Mississippi Basin by building forts uh, in the Ohio Valley. In 1754, a local British militia force, led by 22-year-old George Washington, ambushed a French force in modern-day Pennsylvania. It signalled the start of the two European rivals embarking on a colonial war known as the French and Indian War, as both sides were allied with local Native Americans in this struggle. This localised conflict wouldn't remain a North American affair. Back in Europe, the major powers divided into two camps, conveniently using the Franco-British colonial war to settle outstanding territorial and dynastic disputes on the European continent. It became known as the Seven Years' War. The British government under William Pitt the Elder saw Britain's war aims as global, not just on the battlefields of Europe. The Seven Years' War effectively became the first real world war, as Britain vied with the French and to a lesser extent the Spanish on the high seas and in North America, the Caribbean and India. In 1757, the French struck in North America, capturing Fort William Henry. The British garrison under Lieutenant Colonel George Munro, having effectively been disarmed, were allowed to march home. En route, Native Americans allied to the French attacked the near defenseless column, killing over 200. This event formed the backbone to James Fenimore Cooper's 1826 novel, The Last of the Mohicans, which was later made into a movie. French success, however, was short-lived. By 1759, a British army led by General Wolfe decisively defeated the French at Quebec. Both Wolfe and his opposite number were mortally wounded in the battle, but French military power in Canada was broken, and the city of Montreal surrendered to the British the following year. The focus of the Anglo-French war now shifted to the other side of the world. Ever since the establishment of the East India Company back in the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, the English, and now the British, had had an interest in India. The East India Company had started out as sort of a trading company, but over time the company and its interests grew out of all proportion. By 1720, 15% of Britain's imports came from India alone, virtually all through the East India Company. The East India Company had its own fleet of ships that was so big that it would sometimes assist the Royal Navy. They established supply ports at various bases en route to India, such as the island of St Helena in the Atlantic, where Napoleon eventually ended up being imprisoned. And they established bases in India itself to continue their trade. As early as 1639, they had taken control of the port of Madras. And by the end of the century, Bombay and Calcutta were also East India Company bases. As they sought the most advantageous uh, commercial deals, they were brought into the political feuds inside India itself. It also brought them into rivalry with European competitors, not least France's own East India Company. To increase influence in the dynastic disputes and combat their European rivals, the East India Company established an army to go alongside their navy. 
And now this rivalry was placed against the backdrop of the Seven Years' War. With the British government focused on the wars in Europe and North America, the East India Company were allowed to basically conduct their own campaigns against the French East India Company and their Indian allies. In 1756, the year that the European War broke out, the Nawab of Bengal, the ruler of Bengal, with French encouragement, seized Calcutta from the East India Company. Famously, 64 prisoners were confined in a tiny cell in that tropical humidity. Two-thirds of them died in this black hole of Calcutta. Calcutta was swiftly retaken by the East India Company's army under the command of a man whose name has become synonymous with the British in India, Robert Clive, known as Clive of India. A year later, 1757, Clive defeated a huge Indian army supported again by the French at the Battle of Plassey. With that victory, the East India Company effectively gained control of Bengal. Clive was not the only Briton to be expanding the company power in India. Just a year after the Battle of Plassey, uh, Sir Ia Coote achieved a decisive victory over Indo-French forces at the Battle of Wandiwas. And then in 1764, Sir Hector Munro broke the waning power of the once mighty Mughal Empire with a victory over their forces at the Battle of Buxar. By then, the Seven Years' War had ended. Twelve months earlier, the Treaty of Paris not only brought peace, but also, without a doubt, put Britain on the road to global dominance. In that treaty, the French agreed to support Britain's client states in India. By doing so, they had effectively surrendered any hopes of ever controlling India or even opposing Britain on the subcontinent. Earlier, I spoke about the importance of sugar uh, to the European economies. It played a significant part in the Treaty of Paris, too. France agreed that if Britain returned her two sugar islands of Martinique and Guadeloupe in the Caribbean, which had been captured during the war, she would cede control of Quebec to Britain, paving the way for the foundation of Canada. At that same peace treaty, Spain, France's ally, surrendered their colony of Florida to the British in return for Havana in Cuba, which again the British had captured during the war. In 1763, Britain became the preeminent global power. In the space of seven years, she had eliminated French competition in North America and in India. From the Hudson Bay all the way down to the tip of Florida, Britain presided over a vast North American empire. In India, not only was the French rivalry muted, but the East India Company was now directly ruling over lands bigger than Britain itself. This was not just a sizable territorial empire on the opposite side of the world from North America, but it had new vast markets too. At the end of the Seven Years' War, British exports were estimated to have doubled from 1700, and they would now treble from now until the end of the century. But beneath the surface of this new golden age, cracks were appearing. In North America, most of Britain's colonies were now over 100 years old. The bonds of kinship with the mother country were disappearing. Moreover, the very reasons that Britons had emigrated to America were because they fundamentally disagreed with many of the aspects of how the old country was run. They wanted a new form of administration and new forms of freedom.
And in many ways, those back in London did not grasp how tenuous those bonds were becoming. The removal of the French military threat from North America in theory ushered in a new age of peaceful prosperity. However, the removal of that military threat now allowed the colonists to question why they needed British government to provide for security, especially as the British government had decided that the colonists should pay at least part of the bill for that recent and continuing military activity. And at this stage, we end up with colonists arguing that if they pay taxes, then they should have a greater say in their government, rather than just have laws imposed upon them by colonial governors acting for the British Parliament, in which they had no representation. And the cry, famous cry went up, no taxation without representation. Not that the tax was simply a British wheeze to get American colonists to pay for their victory over the French. Despite their successes, the war effort had placed a huge financial burden on the East India Company. In 1772, the East India Company received a loan from the Bank of England, which was payable by the end of the month. When at the end of the month they defaulted, the Bank of England refused to renew that loan. The mighty East India Company was in serious financial trouble. The galling thing for the company was that they had £18 million worth of tea sitting in their warehouses with no market for it to be sold in. With that collateral, they were able to convince the British government to give them a loan in return for a monopoly on the tea market in those North American colonies. And therein, very basically, we have the roots of the Boston Tea Party the following year. A year after the Boston Tea Party, with tensions rising rapidly in North America, the first Continental Congress, comprising of representatives from those British North American colonies, met and advocated a boycott of British goods until they received fairer representation in government. By 1775, British troops had clashed with local militia at Lexington in Massachusetts, and the, new, the two sides rapidly found themselves at war. The American War of Independence, or the American Revolutionary War, is far too complex to include in this talk. Suffice to say that by 1781, the British had been defeated at Yorktown, and in 1783, with another Treaty of Paris, Britain recognised the independence of her American colonies, soon to be called the United States of America. The British Empire, part one, had ended. The loss of the American colonies wasn't just a military defeat and a loss of face for the growing power of the British. Uh, not everyone in the 13 colonies had supported independence and over 80,000 loyalists left for either Canada or Britain principally. Interesting to note that trade between the new republic and Britain boomed. Indeed, some historians believe that uh, the desire to restore normal trading relations persuaded the British government uh, to accept the inevitable after the defeat at Yorktown rather than uh, trying to prolong the war. The loss of the uh, colonies also had another in unintended consequence. Back in 1717, Parliament had passed the Transportation Act, by which criminals would be transported to North America and also the Caribbean as what was called indentured servants for periods of between 7 and 14 years. By the time the activists were throwing the East India Company's tea chests into Boston Harbour, over 50,000 British and Irish criminals had been transported to North America. Now with the Treaty of Paris recognising the independence of those colonies, that, no that novel prison system had sunk 
like those tea chests in Boston Harbour. Enter Captain James Cook. In that halcyon period between the end of the Seven Years' War and the American War of Independence, this 40-year-old Royal Navy captain from Whitby in Yorkshire was ordered to conduct a scientific survey in the vast Pacific Ocean. Having completed his scientific survey, he opened his sealed orders from the Admiralty for his new mission. His new mission was to find the fabled southern continent of Terra Australis. By the time he returned to England in 1771, Cook had mapped the complete coastline of New Zealand, proving it wasn't part of the fabled continent, and had sailed along the east coast of modern-day Australia. And he laid claim to that east coast and the continent behind it on behalf of Great Britain. His timing couldn't have been better. In 1788, the first convicts arrived on that coastline to establish a new penal colony near Sydney in New South Wales. The story of the British in Australia was about to begin. So the last impact of the loss of the American colonies was that the British focus would move away from North America, with the exception of Canada. From now on, the focus would be to the east, to India, Malaysia, China, Australia, New Zealand, and a new empire would emerge in the early years of the 19th century. Back in 1740, Britannia had been urged to rule the waves to protect British commerce. Now, 50 years later, she had accepted that challenge. With growing influence in India, tentative steps in Australia, an economy that was booming, and a fleet that could match any that a rival could put to sea, Britannia was undoubtedly starting to rule the waves. The British domination of the 19th century therefore had its roots in these years, a century beforehand.